Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. Inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. I am delighted to say that we have our first mother-daughter guests on the show today. I am honoured to be joined by Mungi Ngomani, human rights activist, the granddaughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the author of Everyday Ubuntu, the book inspired by the African philosophy and way of life that counts Meghan Markle and Prince Harry among its fans. And with Mungi today is her mum. Reverend Nontombi Naomi Tutu is a priest, public speaker and social justice activist. Growing up, the daughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu offered her opportunities as well as challenges. Not least the call to ministry, something she resisted until she was finally ordained in her 50s. She now works tirelessly both in her own community and for the advancement of women and girls globally. Both women are shining examples of what can happen when we live by the principles of Ubuntu. So I think first off, Mungi, can you tell the listener who may not be sure, what is Ubuntu? I do say that this changes in my mind every day, depending on how I'm feeling. But I mean, simply put, it's the philosophy that expresses sort of the belief in a universal bond that our humanity is bound up in the humanity of others. So I am because you are um, it's a person is a person through other persons, people. And so it's just about how you walk in the world and carry yourself. And this is what my mother would say, I think, if you asked her that question. Yeah. Well, let's hear. Do you, does, that, does that tally or does everybody have a sort of slightly personal a take on what it is? No, I think that what Mungi has said in terms of the fundamental part of Ubuntu is our interconnectedness, that as human beings, we are connected one to the other. And if that is the mindset with which you walk in the world, the way you carry yourself, the way you treat yourself and the way you treat others will be based on respect. And so having that as an underlying principle, presumably as you say, impacts then on everything you do and everything you say. And how would that how would that play out in practice in in your lives? How, when you wake up in the morning, what might be different if you were living by the principles of Ubuntu? The opposite of it is sometimes I'll wake up and say, this isn't very Ubuntu of me, but this is how I feel. Because some days are just bad days. And that's okay? So I... <laughs> Well, that is, yes, that is part of, I, I think, of Ubuntu. As I said, you know, it comes up, there's a respect for yourself that is part of the philosophy. And so I think that the, the, the difference maybe is that if you wake up with a spirit of Ubuntu, that you offer, first of all, yourself grace, and then all those whom you interact with, you offer the same kind of grace because you understand that we are all human beings with struggles in our lives and that therefore if you can offer yourself grace you are more able to offer that grace to others okay thank you i think the interesting i guess aspect of that for me as as a somebody who didn't grow up with those principles is is the idea that it is being incredibly generous to other people but also 
to yourself and then you're looking after yourself in the same way. Naomi, can you tell me a little, um, growing up in South Africa during apartheid, you've spoken about how the entire human family loses out when people are oppressed and you've always been aware of social injustice. I, I was really fascinated when I read Everyday Ubuntu. Mungi re- recounts the time when people would arrive at your family home and instantly ask, what are we boycotting right now? You know, it was so much a part of, of your life growing up. How, how does that shape your experiences? I think for me anyway, it has meant that I am very much aware of even the, the slightest injustice. So, I mean, for even with my children, right? Just little things like when we would be out at a restaurant, that how you treat the person serving you speaks volumes about you. And, and, and so I think that growing up under apartheid has had made me have a connection with people who are marginalized throughout the globe and, and therefore to, to feel, almost to feel the pain of oppression, even when it is not directly mine. Okay, and, and from a very young age, this is something you were aware of. I know that you went to boarding school first when you were six years old. Can you tell me a little bit about this and the journey that you had to get there even? Yes. My parents were both teachers um, when they got married and they left teaching when Bantu education was introduced in South Africa. So up until that time, education was separate, but they had the same curriculum for black, white, Asian and colored. But Bantu education put in place a a system that was meant to educate blacks for inferiority. And so my parents, along with many others, left the teaching profession. And part of their leaving that was that then they promised one another that they would do all they could to make sure that their children didn't go through Bantu education. And what that meant practically for us was that, yes, at six and a half, I started boarding school in Swaziland, which was a two-day trip from where our family lived in the Eastern Cape. And part of that trip was the recognition from my parents that they had to plan the trip based on the garages, the gas stations that would allow Black people to use the bathroom. So all the gas stations would allow us to buy petrol, right? but that in most of them, bathroom facilities were for whites only. And so planning out the trip and telling us children, right, if you can't hold it to that next one, we're gonna have to stop in the middle of a field. And the same in terms of eating on the trip, that by the time that we were doing it regularly, my parents just simply packed all our food for the trip, they cooked, boiled eggs, made cheese sandwiches, you know, all of that, so that we we would not have to face the indignity of being turned away from shops or being told that we had to stand at a window in order to buy um, rather than go in and make the choice ourselves. That was an added insult to the injury of not being able to go to school right in the community where my parents live. And also the wrench of being away from your parents, albeit necessary. How, how did you find that? I've read that you, you found crying very, very difficult or it didn't come naturally for a long time. Yeah, no. So my older sister would cry basically from the time we hit the gate at school. 
and would stay in the car with my parents until they had to leave to head out. And I quickly came to the realization that crying was not going to stop them from leaving us. So I built up armor, basically. And as soon as my parents stopped the car, I would get my stuff, get out and say hugs and kiss bye. And that was it. You know, whether they were parked still in the schoolyard and with my sister crying in the car, I would not come back. I've said my goodbye. And as far as I was concerned, there was no point crying. And I carried that into the rest of my life, basically, that I, I had a very hard time crying. And your daughter does too. Is that right? I was going to ask. How interesting. So how has that played out in, in your family dynamic? I mean, my mom did say to us when we were younger, you know, I don't want you to feel like you can't cry. I want us to have a relationship where you can tell me when things are difficult. And, and I don't want you to hold it in the way that I have. Crying just makes me physically so uncomfortable. So, I mean, maybe I just like, it was osmosis or something. I just, but it wasn't something that she tried to pass down. She tried to like, you know, make it a place where we, we shared everything. And so if you need to cry, you need to cry. And of course I cried to my mom. It's, it's that moment where, you know, your mom calls you and says, is everything okay? And then you just break down. But in other instances, absolutely not. I just, I can't. And I think that's just, you know, that powerful thing about children watch what you do not what you say, because I really did say to them, you know, I don't want you to grow up with this armor that I grew up with. But what I modeled was having an armor, right? I think it's very interesting as well, seeing the pattern play out through at least three generations and who knows what will come, but that sense of duty as well, that clearly it was was such a powerful thing for, for your father, Naomi, and, and now for you and for you, Mungi, I see as well, you know, you have all grown up with that sense that I will, I will do something and I will be an activist and I will fight injustice. Is that something you ever remember there being a time, either of you, where, where you thought, okay, it's, it is my duty to do something, or it was just always there? For me, I think it was always there. I don't even think I was aware of it as, as a decision. I mean, it was growing up, we were fortunate to be introduced to meet and spend time with so many activists in South Africa. My father, while he was at the Federal Seminary, was also chaplain to the University of Fort Hare, which was a major site of resistance in the 60s and 70s. And, and so the student activists we were meeting in, in our home and hearing the conversations. And so, I mean, it was, it was just something that was in the air. Those were the people who were our heroes. Those were the people who were also our big brothers and big sisters. It just was you know, that's what it is. That is how you live in the world, the, the concern and the speaking up for justice. And Mungi, I've, I've heard you worked in Palestine. You've written about being exposed to, you know, predominant global players from an early age, casually dropping in in everyday Ubuntu, um, you know, Lord Peter Hayne and his work on the Good Friday Agreement. It just blew my mind, this idea that <laughs> I was hanging out with Lynn from Two Doors Down, but the, the people you were... <laughs> coming into your sphere, that, that must have had a, you know, a huge impact. You know, you use the word duty. And I think that that's, it's not, that's how I would think of it. It's just sort of all these people were around me. 
they're so impressive. They're showing so much love to others. Of course, this is what I should be doing. I'm watching them, so I should do the same. And I think that when I finally decided that Middle East conflict resolution was something that I was really interested in, it was sort of just a moment of like, ah, okay, this is like where I'm supposed to be. And that sounds kind of horrible because we don't want conflict in the Middle East, but it's just sort of like I felt something that I connected to and a group of people that I could fulfill this duty, even though that is not how it does feel in my body. And how are you? I guess you've you've touched a little, both of you, on, you know, looking after yourselves, but with the things that you are experiencing and the people that you are helping and, you know, thinking about your grandfather, Mungi, as, as chairman of the TRC, seeing, hearing about such graphic crimes and trying to not be crushed by them because the work is too important. You know, how how in your family do you culturally get by when you are exposed to sadness or when you're exposed to things that many people would just break down and not know how to handle? Well, you know, for me, one of the things is that, yes, my father was at the TRC and the commissioners with the rest of the country heard some awful stories of what what had been done to fellow South Africans by other South Africans. And the pictures from the TRC is from the very first hearing and my father just broke down. And in that process, they decided that, in fact, commissioners needed to have access to mental, emotional, and spiritual care. I think that in a way that has been the model my parents have given me has been that the sense that you surround yourself with a community that will hold you up in the times that you feel broken down, that the recognition that you are going to be broken down, there are going to be times when it feels too much. There are going to be times when all you can do is lock yourself in your room and sob for hours. That this is again where Ubuntu comes in, that you are part, make sure that you are part of a community that holds you in that time that you have broken down. That not, not to stop you from feeling the pain, but from letting you know that you are not alone. And when you break down that know that there is somebody who will step up into the gap until you are ready to come back. That reminds me of when Mungi and I first met before we actually met in person. We met online <laughs> back when we could have met in person. Can you imagine? But um, and I was I think I was talking about grieving around the world and we talked about funeral uh, rituals. And I think Mungi, I remember you telling me that in South Africa, there's a sense that you you feel that sadness and you have your community around you to feel your sadness. And that's how you handle it with Ubuntu, because you are in it together. And perhaps that what you've just said, Naomi, reminds me of, of that. It's it's this idea that, yes, it's this extraordinary pain. You're not pushing it away and you're not saying I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to have that support in there. And I wonder now, I've heard you say, Naomi, you went through periods when you were throughout your work, when you've been an activist in, in gender and against domestic abuse and having experienced a lot of things yourself, that you've gone through periods of, of wondering about God and wondering about faith and does my God not care about me and how can my people be allowed to be treated like second-class citizens and how have you ridden these these sort of big existential questions and these big questions of faith 
so for me the diff the you know the the opposite of faith isn't doubt so doubt is not the opposite of faith i think that doubt and faith actually walk hand in hand if you have never experienced doubt in your spiritual life then i don't think that you really have faith because the very presence of doubt is what what encourages you to then step out in faith and the and the other part in terms of my relationship with god has been that my parents the whole time we were growing up were very open about yes you can be angry with god god can take your anger god can take your doubt god can can handle whatever it is you throw at god because that's who god is that is the magnanimity of god that that what they used to say to us is that you know when you yell and scream at us which we didn't really do mm. that much but when you are angry with us as your parents we don't disown you you know we still are your parents and we still love you we're humans so how much more our god can take up your pain your anger your doubt the times you turn away that is all part of having a true relationship with god and mungi i know that you don't experience faith in the same way are you <laughs> are you comfortable talking a little bit about this yes i mean obviously i have a very you know lovely mother who doesn't really push anything on us except for midnight mass on christmas eve <laughs> and so i think from when we were younger my brother and i we always went to church and whenever my mother went to church and then whenever we were with family we always did family eucharist on vacations like a disney cruise can you imagine and so it was just sort of it always happened as expected i went to religious school so then we'd have chapel and then i sort of got to an age where i didn't have to go anymore i didn't sit in church and necessarily feel any connection to anything and then didn't feel like when i left that i was missing anything i think my younger brother actually sort of prompted it more in me as i just sort of was like maybe i'm not religious i i think i'm culturally anglican and so i will do the midnight mass and i will do easter services and i'm fine going to church to hear my mom do sermons because i want to support her but i am in a space where i don't feel like i'm missing out not speaking to god was there any conflict in relaying that to your mom obviously she's listening now but you know generally <laughs> i don't think so my i mean my grandfather calls us the heathen children but <laughs> but i think with mom it was it was fine and because i went through i went through a time when i was the the heathen child okay so, uh, <laughs> she was so it, i yeah so it has i have not felt the need to push on the children the you will believe what i believe as mungi says when we were on on family vacations i i said to them you have to at least go to family eucharist on a sunday but we, my my family does family eucharist every day And so I would tell my kids, okay, on vacation, no. If you go on Sunday, you're fine. You don't have to go every single day while we're on vacation. So I I always had this sense that their spiritual life was going to be theirs, that they would make their own relationship with what connects them 
to a, a higher a higher being. That's incredibly generous of you. And especially, I think, considering your own journey with, as I mean, in your words, heathen, and then resisting the call. Can you tell me a little bit, I, I know it was in your 20s where you first sort of thought, oh, maybe I should become ordained. And then it, you pushed it away for quite some time. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So the first time I, I felt the sense of a call was I had just finished my, my first master's, which would be 84. So I was 24 and had a really strong sense of there was a call on my life. What does that feel like, I wonder? I'm so curious. So first of all, it felt like that I was invited to preach. I had, I'd been doing public speaking for, since I was 18, but I was starting to be invited to preach specifically at churches and recognized that my experience in preaching was different from my experience in speaking, that even as I was really invested in the sermons that I was preaching. There was a way in which it was not my sermon, that it was clear to me that there was some connection with something that was bigger than me, that spirit was part of the process. And so in that recognition and that finding myself comfortable in a place that I had always thought was a terror, like a pulpit, because you know, growing up with your, when you're seeing your parent in the pulpit, not knowing what's going to come out of their mouth on any given Sunday and whether they're going to throw you under the bus in a story in their sermon. So I had grown up with the sense of the pulpit, stay away from it. And also because growing up, I looked so much like my father and people would always comment about how much like my father I looked. And, and so the thought of ministry was just, no, I am not going to be a mini Desmond. And if I follow this path, this is going to be that people are going, oh, you're walking in your father's footsteps. And I was like, no, that is, that is not who I am going to be. And so I did, I pushed it away for another 23 years. So it wasn't until I was in my fifties that I recognized that I had been running and was tired of running and had been struggling. And uh, one of my spiritual directors said to me, this is just ridiculous. Just stop and just face it. I mean, it could be that it's all your imagination and you're just torturing yourself over nothing. Take the time to listen properly to what is going on. And so, I mean, I went kicking and screaming all the way. First of all, I did not go through a discernment process in an, an Episcopal church the way it would have been expected. I just signed up myself to divinity school to do an, M, um, an MDiv. And then when I did, in the middle of that MDiv, get a sense of a call to the Episcopal Anglican communion faith and journey as for ordination, even then, I, I seriously fought it the whole way through the process. The first time I was asked to put on a cassock, I had a physical reaction. Like my stomach was just so gnarled up. So yeah, it, it, was, it was a fight the whole way. <laughs> and then did it feel different when you finally sort of, I guess, I guess accepted that calling? Did, was there a sense of relief? Yes, there, there has been a sense that I am doing what, what I'm meant to be doing being at the altar, 
serving the Eucharist, preaching, being with parishioners in times of great joy and in times of stress and pain just feels like this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I think in terms of of helping other people, you're both very good on getting us to have difficult conversations from what I have gathered. And I think facing uncomfortable (laughs) truths as well. And um, Mungi, I wonder, has this been a conscious approach of yours? I'm thinking of something as mainstream as Instagram. I think you have certainly over the last year in, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, you have been a real sort of beacon of encouraging these conversations in a helpful way. And I think it wasn't even selfishly for be to encourage conversations. I think a lot of it was I needed to get it out of my body by writing it. And so then Instagram had sort of just become that place. I had been off of Instagram for almost three years and then had just returned. And it clearly was a new place where people were discussing actual things, I think, of substance finally. And it just helped to write these things and discuss these things. And then I sort of realized there are people that are also learning sort of through my journey. And I don't even know if I found the balance there yet. I feel like they're, my audience is maybe very white and they're learning from what I'm saying, which is wonderful. But I would also love to highlight black voices and like celebrate black life. And, and so that is something that I'm trying to figure out. Where do you have those different conversations? How do you frame them to where they are helpful for some, but also very honest and and move us to where we should be going. So I would really love to ask you, please, to tell the story of Carl from, from your book, Mungi. Who is the best person to ask to tell it? Who should tell oh, the story I, of Carl? I think mom is. Okay. Naomi, please, could you tell us about Carl? So I met Carl, I was doing, a, I was invited to do a presentation at Vanderbilt University. This was 1999, I guess. So, the, you know, what is the 21st century going to look like in academia and politics and economics? And so I, I was talking about the 21st century, my, my view that the 21st century was going to be the century for black, indigenous, and people of other people of color and women to take the lead in all of these areas and change the ways in which we just even think about the economy, that we think about how politics are done, et cetera. And I was really, I mean, I got into this presentation and at the end of the presentation, this person stood up to ask a question. And my first thought was, oh my Lord, it's an angry white man. and he was an angry white man, but he wasn't the angry white man I was expecting. Carl had spent much of his life on the streets, much of his life in and out of mental health institutions. A, a brilliant person, he'd been a I mean, brilliant young man, wrote prolifically. But so he was angry that I was doing this presentation in Vanderbilt, this very elitist institution. So he said, why would you be be talking about a a revolutionary change in a place where the people you're talking about are not even welcome. And so we had a back and forth and um, he called me elitist. And I was like, how are you saying I'm elitist? 
you just heard me give one presentation and you think you know me. And he said, well, I heard them read your bio. And I was like, my bio is, a, it's a resume, it's a CV. It is not the story of my life. But then um, the host said, okay, we need to move on and let other people ask questions. And then the next morning when I got to my office at Tennessee State, Carl was standing outside with an envelope and he gave me the envelope and left. And when I opened the envelope, it was, he said, you know, I accept what you said last night that I don't know you and I would like to have more conversations with you. Would you be willing for us to meet? And so I got, and he gave me his phone number. I got in, I called him and we met for coffee and had an amazing conversation talking about each other's stories. And so we made another appointment to meet for coffee. And then we started meeting for lunch once a month. And we, you know, we built a, a, a real friendship. And he was one of the people who early on was saying, you know, you're called to ministry, right? Um, and then he lost his, um, his home, he lost housing. And so I had this, we had a big house in Nashville with a spare bedroom. So I said, you can move in with us until you, you sort out what you want. And, and he moved in and he became, so the kids used to call him Mr. Carl. Very polite. And then there was a change where Mpilo, my son, started calling him Uncle Carl and having these amazing conversations with him. And so when Carl was, was readmitted into, uh, for a mental health breakdown, Mpilo and I would go and visit him and he would always remember Mpilo's birthday, especially Mpilo's birthday. He would, there would always be a card he would always try and be there for the birthday party. And he became part of my support system in, as I became part of his support system. And, and so uh, I, I like to tell the story because each of us had a, a, a vision of the other in our mind. And if we had not had the courage to step beyond what we knew about each other, I know that I would have lost an amazing friendship and we're, we're, we still are in touch. To overcome those preconceptions though, it does take, it feels like a leap of faith and maybe that's it, maybe it's a faith thing. I mean, it does feel as though the world is so divided now. Do you remain hopeful for us? I do. And the reason I do is because I listen to so many young people and the things that they are saying, doing, working on gives me real hope. And the real hope comes not from them saying, let's all sing Kumbaya and just join hands and rock back and forth, but rather let's question the structure that is oppressing me, oppressing other people. It's, it's not for them, like, can we all just get along? Though that might be underlying it, but it is that there is work that needs to be done if we are going to get along. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives me hope, that it's not, it is not based on some airy-fairy, if we ignore the problems, then they'll go away. But the fact that they are challenging themselves and one another to say, if we don't deal with these issues that are dividing our world right now, we are all done for. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And maybe that comes back then to the having the difficult conversations and the sitting with discomfort. I think, um, Mungi, you have, you've written something very powerful about this making friends with ambiguity a bit more and, and with nuance and that every negative has a positive and every positive has a negative. Do, do you think, Mungi, that can be a hard one to come to terms with, especially... I mean, you're a lot younger than me, but there are generations where we have kind of grown up with this more polarized world. The world does seem very polarized right now. So the the living in the gray, I would say, is difficult for me. I'm a person that likes control. And so I do think it's something to grasp. I think when it comes to people not accepting nuance, that is something that really grinds my gears. Like we all have brains. We're all adults that are capable of using them. And yet we choose not to, you know, I think of last week with the Sarah Everard case and all these things where people say, not all men, of course, nobody said all men, but that's also not where the discussion is because it's some men that you didn't think of. It's your friends that you didn't say that's inappropriate. That's not how you speak to a woman. And, and so I do struggle when people don't entertain nuance and aren't willing to sort of go the extra step to sit in our emotional intelligence and actually think about, it can't exactly be this and it can't exactly be that. And so when it comes to my life, if it's harming someone, then it's it's pretty black and white to me. But if it's not harming people, then I do think there is room to discuss and learn that's something I deal with and I have difficulty with because I have very smart people around me, my mother, my partner, my family, and I love to work with logic, but sometimes it's, we can't just, you know, go the logical route. There's a lot more to unearth. Can you give any examples of the, the um, you know, every negative having a positive and every positive having a negative? I, a, a previous guest, Mo Gaudat, he, he felt very strongly having lost his son that there, there is some good to come out of of even the the darkest times, and but I'm I'm not sure that's exactly what you mean. Do, can you elaborate a little about what that means for you? I think that groups of people who are probably marginalized have to continue to find positives and negatives. I would even say COVID nineteen. It has taken so many people from the world. It has taken away all these freedoms that we didn't know we took for granted. And, you know, just having the choice to send your kids to school and not homeschool them. And something I know that you've been homeschooling a lot. Just nodding a lot. Here, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it has created the sort of reset for everyone. Things were not working, but things were going to continue on the way they were because there was nothing that had really jostled enough of us, which then I think goes into, do we have empathy? Because... Now the world is sort of seen, if it doesn't affect me, then I don't think of it. But now this has affected all of us. And finally, we're here. So, you know, COVID was this huge negative, but there's so many positive things that came out of it for individuals, growth, learning, of course, more time with your kids. <laughs> so much, so much time. <laughs> Which is wonderful, obviously. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. And I wonder if that leads to lesson four in Everyday Ubuntu is around choosing to see the wider perspective. And that's something I I really feel passionately about around books and the arts and, and travel and thinking more globally. How, how do you do this 
yourself in everyday life? How do you practice Ubuntu in terms of perspective? I think with the podcast that I do, it has allowed me to speak to so many people for a longer amount of time than you would ever imagine. You know, when you get to have an hour with someone, just you one-on-one, I think that conversation changes because you're really finding out about their work and their perspective and what brought them to where they are instead of maybe we were at a drinks thing. And so it's a 10 minute conversation, but in the everyday, like you said, I, I struggle as well because if I, want someone's perspective, I'm either going to ask my mother or my partner. And maybe their perspectives are very similar to mine because we're all necessarily well, (laughs) there's a dispute sometimes. (laughs) And, you know, I do think some of us live in echo chambers when it comes to certain things. And that is something that I am comfortable with at this moment. My echo chamber is very much about social justice and ending oppression. So I'm okay with that Mm -hmm. is what I mean by I'm okay with this echo chamber because I don't see where the bad is in that. Feels like a good chamber. For now, I think we're okay. But I do think that there are other things I could do to get a wider perspective. And I think maybe COVID has sort of stalled those when it comes to travel. But of course, books and looking at nature from the window for me, I'm allergic to everything, is one way. (laughs) And and Naomi, how do you you lift yourself when you're feeling a need of some perspective, when you're feeling a need of, um, I guess, a different viewpoint or just a break? There are two kind of similar but different things that go on for me. So there's the one where I'm feeling like, why is our world like this? For instance, Yesterday was the anniversary of the murder of Breonna Taylor. And so when I listen to that story, I'm thinking, why is it as Black people that this continues to be our story? And then I feel ready to break into tears, to give up, to, you know, to not believe that the world can be a good place. And in response to that, the two things I do is one, I reach out to my community, um, which includes people that I went to seminary with, women that I went to high school and college with, who can remind me of why I am in this work, why I am in this world. And I also then think of those who trod this path before me. I remind myself of my, my grandmothers who worked so hard in their lives and never got the opportunities that I did and who believed that investing in their children and grandchildren, I mean, preparing them for a life in a free South Africa, even if they never saw that free South Africa was worth the work. And so knowing that there were whole generations of people behind me who went and and worked hard and fought for the end of apartheid, the end of my oppression, knowing that they would never see it and yet didn't give up. So that's the one, like when I feel ground down in the work. The other is when I just feel down in and of myself, just then I give myself the permission to be down. If there's so, you know, like I'm just like, today I am locked in my room with a box of tissues 
a huge chocolate bar, some red wine, and I'm going to cry and moan and allow myself to accept that there is this huge sadness in me. And then I'm going to get up and take a shower and remind myself of all the wonderful things in my life, my children, my friends, the fact that I am able to, that I am actually able to support myself, that I'm able, that, you know, that last month I was able to go home when my parents needed me and, and to spend time with them. Those are all gifts, right? And so, so after I've had my wallow in my misery, I remind myself of all the places that I have been gifted by people around the world. I'm very, I'm very pleased to hear you say that you do the looking after yourself part also. I think that is <laughs> wonderful. I've also heard you say that murder mysteries sometimes do it for you. Oh, yes. Nice for the oh, relaxing. My yes. <laughs> nice. Because everything gets sorted out at the end. Vera. Vera. Oh, God bless Brenda Vera. Brenda B. Yeah. Midsummer murders. Oh, I love midsummer murders. Absolutely <laughs> adore it. I once had a, a letter opener that was a dagger from the Midsummer Murders set. Oh, and wow. I don't know where it is. It pains oh, me. Oh, my goodness. Terribly. But I wonder, and, and I know that for both of you, you know, talking about Archbishop Desmond Tutu is both a privilege and also something that you, it, it, it's not what defines you. But I was, I was looking at pictures from, I think it was from the 60-year anniversary of of Mungi, your grandfather and your grandmother and, and Naomi, your mother and father. And just the idea of having a marriage that is it 66 years now I just is sort of phenomenal and it, you're such a formidable family D does the sort of I don't know does that feel like a, a kind of pressure in the relationship stakes or in just the days when you are personally having a, a tough day does it feel like there is this legacy and there is this model of, of a relationship and just a way to be that is a pretty high bar well, obviously, I, I haven't tried to meet the high bar since I've been divorced twice. So, <laughs> so I, I, you know, I hold up that, that relationship and that marriage in, in awe and I cheer them on for having done so. I realized fairly quickly that I wasn't going to get to 30 years, let alone 60. So I just had to accept that that was me and very happy for them and proud of them for um, sticking through <laughs> thick and thin, you know, better and worse, poorer and richer. Um, they really have. They really have gone through it. But it did not make me think I have to stay in an unhappy marriage because my parents were together for 60 years. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, my mother... And my father divorced. So I marriage didn't seem like the most important thing to me. And I just never thought that just because someone was married meant that their relationship was better than if they weren't married. So kudos to them. But it also wasn't something that I felt that was necessary. It's just me looking at the pictures thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> the pressure. Well, I haven't even hit uh, a year of marriage yet. So Oh, congratulations. What a year. What a year for a first year. 11 months now. Well, if you can survive lockdown marriage, then you can survive any marriage, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and so, so Naomi, now, now how Naomi handles the really sad days with 
the chocolate and the murder mysteries and the Vera <laughs> and the red wine. Mungi, how do you handle it on days where life just feels impossible these days? I think sleep is like the most amazing gift that we've ever been given. And when children refuse to sleep, I'm like, you don't know what you're missing. Sleep would be my first go-to, but my mother and I speak every day usually. And so up, down, especially down, she basically talks me through all of it. And then I will go back and bring up the same thing to Ed so that he can also help talk me through it. I'm very much a talker when it comes to getting emotions out with those two people. Otherwise, I'm not very comfortable discussing my emotions. So the sleeping and the speaking to sort of your support network is what I think makes a difference for me. And also now really writing. It brings it out of my body. And when I'm upset, my body sort of manifests things. And I think I probably got that from my mother. So the writing is sort of a way to get it out so that I'm not physically ill. But yes, certainly the support system. I am a big yeah evangelist of this, the idea of like the buddy system that mm-hmm. you need. And I, for years, thought I am a rock. I'm an island. I'm all the other lyrics mm. to that song. But yes, we are not. <laughs> we need our people. And finally, I like to ask all my guests with all that you know now and from all of your experiences, what would you tell your 21-year-old self about how to handle the sadness and the challenges that life throws at us? I think maybe Mungi first because it was more recent. Yeah, I have to think about that. (laughs) I have to try and remember what when 21 was. Well, it was before the first call to ministry then, wasn't it? It was before the 24, (laughs) the first idea of the clergy. 21-year-old Mungi. I probably would have said a few things. You will get over that breakup. Everyone goes through a breakup and it is not going to be the worst thing to happen to you. It's okay to outgrow people and build your support system now. Those are really good pieces of advice for any age. In fact, I might get those on a (laughs) t-shirt. Very good. (laughs) Yes. And how about you, Naomi? I think I would say to to that poor 21-year-old, again, the the same thing, that you are a worthy human being. My 21-year-old self was not quite sure of that. Yeah, that you are a gift to those you come in contact with and you can allow them to be gifts in your life. I would say... Set up your boundaries, girl. Yes. Be be clear that no one has the right to your emotions. No one has the right to denigrate you. The, The last would be dance. Just dance. I loved dancing growing up. And then I, um, I dated and married somebody who did not like dancing and I stopped dancing. So when I was 21, I wasn't doing much dancing. And I would say to my 21-year-old self, dance. You know it lifts your spirit. You know it connects you to family and friends. Dance. What a wonderful place to end before I break down in sobs and tears. (laughs) Thank you both so much. It's such a joy to speak to you both. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.